Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. We invite you to read along with us on this morning. And so I want to say this at the outset. Um, please don't get up and run out. I'm going to tell you what the topic is in advance. Please, I trust that you'll stay with me. Um, Throughout the year, I always start the month of January talking about a few things. We talk about prayer. We talk about community. Uh, uh, I typically do a message about just your personal growth and development at the beginning of the year. We also talk about finances. Um, And and so this morning, you came on a Sunday that that we're talking about about money. Now, let me say this. Um, If you grew up in church and maybe you've been just become disillusioned with church because you've heard preachers just talk about money ad nauseum, um, we don't talk about money often in this church, um, but, but when we do, we try to give a, a, a genuine biblical perspective on your relationship with money from God's vantage point, and that's what we're going to try to do today. And so my prayer is that you wouldn't turn off because we're talking about this topic of money. Here's the thing about money. It's the one thing that everybody wants more of but don't want to talk about, <laughs> Right? And, and, and so, and so we, should, we should lean in to those places that make us uncomfortable, all right? And this is what we're going to do today. So Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplace, in the marketplaces. They want the best seats in the synagogues. In the places of honor at banquets, they devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Suddenly the story kind of takes a break, turns somewhere else, but I think it's fitting. Verse 41, sitting across from the temple treasury, this is Jesus, he watched. He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. I want you to envision that. Jesus is just sitting back, chilling watching people put money in the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he says to them, this is so so crazy, he he says, hey, guys, come here. Truly I tell you, this, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you, God, today just for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you, God, for your presence today. We thank you that you are a sovereign Lord who sees and knows all things. And so today, Lord, we entrust this time to you. We pray ultimately that your son Jesus would be made known today. We pray that he would draw men unto himself today. Um, Lord, I pray that the word of God today would just do something in our hearts, something uncommon, something supernatural. I pray that you would change our perspective today. I pray that you would grow us in our faith today. And and so, Lord, we just want to take this time to say thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you are doing and all that you're going to do, Lord. We We don't take your grace for granted. 
Today, God, as we study the word, help us to have clarity and understanding. And, and God, convict us where we need convicting. Um, Lord, if there is an unbeliever here today, God, we thank you for them, Lord. We just pray that they would see and hear the good news of the gospel today, God. And we pray that they would be born again on today. And, and for the believer who's here, God, we pray that we would all grow in our faith, that we would grow stronger as believers and more, be more committed to following Jesus. And so we just thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We pray this prayer in your son Jesus' name. The people of God said amen. amen. Maybe seated in the Lord's presence. From the sermon series Faithful, my sermon title this morning is How God Makes Sense of My Finances. How God Makes Sense of My Finances. There's a father and young son who were traveling on the highway one day, and the son, young son mentioned that, that he was hungry. He said, Dad, that, that I'm hungry. And lo and behold, as they're traveling on the highway, they see the golden arches. They see the golden arches. See, in this generation doesn't mean much. When you grew up in the 80s, you grew up in the 70s, those golden arches were everything. Like that, that changed the game for you. And, and so they see the golden arches, and they, the father pulls in from the highway into the parking lot, and they come into the restaurant, and the son takes a seat at the table while the father goes to the register. After a few moments, the father comes back to the table, and he brings the son a little cardboard, red cardboard box of french fries, steaming hot french fries, and the son's face lights up. He's excited because he's hungry, and he's about to tear these fries down. Now, if you're modern, you change the restaurant to Chick-fil-A or whatever suits your preference, right? The, the bougie Christians, right? But, but, but he's enjoying the fries, and his face is full of delight for what his father's brought, brought, brought him. He's enjoying it. And the father is sitting there, and he is smiling, delighting in what his son is delighting in. He enjoys seeing his son delight in what he brought to him. And so, lo and behold, like every parent does when you give the kids some fries, every parent reaches over at some point, and they try to take a fry. We've, we've all been there before. But when the father does this, the son snaps at the father and says, stop, get your own. These are mine. These are mine. And, the, and it struck the father's heart that his son will respond in this way. And so the whole ride home, the father is just contemplating about his son's reaction for the father just to get one fry. And he realizes that the son is missing something. My, my son is missing something. What my son is missing is that if I wanted to, I could take all the fries, number one. And number two, doesn't he realize that I could give him more fries than his little belly could ever handle? And so the son is missing something. He's missing something. Here's what the son is missing. He's missing that it was the father who bought the fries, and it was the father who brought the fries to him. And in the text, what we will realize today, before we ever talk about money in church, is that nothing that we have belongs to us. Everything that we have belongs to God. And so if you're not a believer, you may not have grown up in church, or maybe you have grown up in church, and every time you've been in church and there's been a message about money or finances we narrow it down to what's called tithe and offering. 
And that's fine. You've heard of tithing offering. I'm not saying tithing offering is wrong, but I, I want to take a step back and give you a clear picture on God's vantage point about our finances. And, and so before we talk about what's called tithing offering, we need to talk about what's called stewardship. You see, the Bible tells us something about God, that we own nothing and God owns everything. This is something that the psalmist understood. There's a scripture, Psalm 24, verse 1, and I love what this says. Psalm 24, verse 1 says this. It says that the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. Like God owns everything. God, everything that we can see, that we touch, that we possess, belongs to God. Even our very lives belong to God. There, there's one other psalm, Psalm 50. The psalm talks about how every animal of the forest belongs to God and the cattle that God owns, a cattle upon a thousand hills. And then the psalmist says, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for everything in the world is mine. Everything belongs to me. And so the first thing that we must realize this morning is that nothing belongs to us and everything belongs to God. However, God graciously invites us in and allows us to be managers of his vast resources. So you and I are not owners, we are simply managers. And the term for manager is what the Bible would call a steward. A steward typically in antiquity was a household manager. The, the, the household owner would leave and go somewhere and would entrust all of his possessions to what's called a steward. And the steward would manage the resources of the owner in the interest of the owner. And so I want to give you a working definition of stewardship this morning. Here's a working definition of stewardship. Here's what a steward is. A steward is one who has been entrusted with the possessions of a another to manage it in the best interest of the owner. And the typical pattern is that when one faithfully manages what they have been given, they typically are entrusted with more responsibility. The problem with us, I, I believe, the problem with us is that we have this owner mentality that we own everything, that we own everything, and that it is our choice, what we do with what we've been given, but that couldn't be further from the truth. If God gives you something, God expects you to manage it, not for your glory, but for his glory. That this is our responsibility, that, that God calls us to be faithful stewards. Once we grasp that we are stewards, that, that we are just managers, and that we're not owners, then this will free us to become more generous. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity when talking about how we should give. Here's what uh, C.S. Lewis says. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not all pinch us or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charities, our charities' expenditures excludes them from us. This is the right perspective on giving. I, I want to just hit you with some real 
live statistics about giving in the church. If you ever do, do people really give a tithe in church? I, we hear pastors talk about it all the time. We hear churches talk about it, but do people really give? Do people actually give ten percent or more of their income? In America? do people really? People really do that? Well, I'm gonna give you some statistics about the American church. Here's some some recent giving statistics. Here's the first statistic that you need to see. 75 to 90 percent of church members do not tithe. 75 to 90 percent of church members do not tithe. That should make you shudder. Or maybe that already confirms what you already knew. (laughs) Secondly, that leaves the next statistic, only 10% to 25% of the people do tithe. And so if a church has 100 members, roughly, church has 100 members, there are probably 10 to 25 members. I venture to say there's about 10 people in a church of 100 that actually give a tithe, at least a tithe. But here's the other interesting thing. 77% of the people that do tithe give between 11 to 20% of their income. They're not only tithers, they are generous people. They, they actually practice what we at the outpouring call extravagant generosity. So here's the thing. If everyone in the church was to increase their giving to the bare minimum 10%, the church universal would have an additional $165 billion. We wouldn't need the world to do anything because the church would step up and take care of everything. And this is what God invites us to. We, we, we could take care of poverty. We, we could take care of homelessness. We could fix the educational system. We could fix all of these things that, that we fuss about and we tweet about. We could fix them on our own as a church if we would just pull our resources together and stop living on our own agenda and get on God's agenda. We, we literally could change the world, but... But oftentimes, we don't say, how much can I give? We say, what is the least I can do and get God off my back? We oftentimes treat God like he's a mob boss named Jimmy Knuckles, and he walks around with a bat, and if we don't give, he's going to take our kneecaps out. But God is not a mob boss. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. The Bible tells us, if, if don't, don't give under compulsion, why? Because motives matter to God. The heart, the heart posture of the giver matters to God. The heart posture of the giver matters to God. And this is what we have in our context today. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. And if you're not a, a, a student of the Bible, that's okay. I want to explain this to you. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and this is the last week of Jesus' life. This is what we Christians will call Passion Week. And, and, and so we know in Christianity and, and historically that Jesus dies on a Friday. Well, well this particular passage is roughly around Wednesday. So this is a couple of days before Jesus is to die on the cross for humanity, before he takes on our sins, stands in our place, takes on the wrath of God that our sins deserve, that we deserve to pay for. Before he does this, there's a couple of things that Jesus is doing. And Jesus is teaching about who he is and about his identity. And so here's what Jesus knows in light of everything that's about to happen. He knows that he's going to die. He knows completely that his purpose is to voluntarily and sacrificially give his life. He knows this. He's clear about his purpose. 
But, but whenever you're about to do something or you have this purpose, there's always going to be some opposition. And Jesus has clear opposition in Mark's gospel. There are these group of guys called the scribes whose reference in verses 38 through 40. If you look at the Bible, these scribes are all about showmanship. The Bible tells us that they wear these long religious robes. They want the best seats at the banquets. They want the best seats in the synagogues. They want greetings in the marketplace. They devour widows' houses. They say long prayers. And the scripture tells us that these will receive stricter judgment. Here's why. Because they have a veneer of religiosity. They, they, they have a form of godliness but deny the power. They look holy. They look religious. They say the religious things. They do the religious activities, but it's all external. There's no transformation that has happened in the lives of these scribes, and they stand in opposition to everything that Jesus is doing. And so he has this opposition, and they serve an example as an example of self-serving religiosity. They are all about the self. They, they look out for their own interests before the interests of others. But here's what the Bible is warning us about, about the scribes, is that they, they live for themselves when the Bible has called us to not live for ourselves, but to live sacrificially. The Bible calls us to self-sacrifice. The Bible calls us to put others' needs ahead of our own. Christianity, contrary to popular Christian teaching, is not about you. Christianity is about Christ. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oftentimes we hear about Christianity, it's about what's in it for me. What, what can I get out of this? Ten ways to get rich. Ten, ten steps to, to a more prosperous life. F five rules to get into a good relationship. Six, six rules for this and five rules for that when, when that's just a bunch of self-help. The Bible calls us to doubt ourselves, to put others' interests ahead of our own. Let me say this. The gospel has redeemed us from being self-serving to being self-sacrificial. He has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. He's brought us from light, from darkness to light, from death to life. He has rescued us and redeemed us from our selfishness. The hallmark of Christianity is self-sacrifice, that we will pick up our cross and follow Jesus, that we follow the way of the Savior who denies himself. And we ought to pick up this pattern, not just in certain areas of our life, but every area. Area, including our finances. And so this scene takes place in the temple or around the temple. And so I want to tell you something about the temple. The temple had courtyards or what's called courts, right? They had several courts in the temple, and this is where this takes place. And so the, the outer, outer court of the temple was, was the court of the Gentiles. Only Gentiles we're, we're, we're in this particular area. This is as far as a Gentile, a non-Jewish person could go in the court of the Gentiles. They could not go any further, so much so that the next court closest to the, the temple actually had a sign on the wall that, that warned Gentiles to enter at their own risk or risk death. Like, like the Gentile, there was a place that they could not go. If you were a Gentile, there, there was a certain place that you could not go. That, 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 that whole water fountain thing 
and sitting at the back of the bus. That's not a new thing. Racism has been all the way back in the Bible. That's been there a long time ago, but thank God because of Jesus that he has already torn down the wall of hostility and he has made you and Gentile one new man in Christ Jesus. Right. And, and, and so and so he has torn down these walls and made us one. But in this particular context, the wall is still there. The wall is still there. The wall of the, 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 the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles. And then after the court of the Gentiles is what's called the court of women. Now, anybody could go in this particular court. You didn't have to be a woman. As long as you were Jewish, you could be in the court of women. But this was as far as women could go. So not only do you see racism, you see sexism in the Bible as well. And, and, and here's the interesting thing about the court of women. The temple treasury was located in the court of women. So when people came to give their offerings, they came in the court of women where the temple treasury was located. And this is where we find Jesus in this particular text. And Jesus is just sitting back watching people as they put money in the temple treasury. Now, typically in the court of women, there were these 13 containers with a trumpet-shaped entrance where people would come in and they would drop their coins in one of these 13 trumpets or 13 containers. And typically those containers were marked for certain kinds of offerings. Some were for designated for these, this kind of offering or that kind of offering. And some of them were for free will offerings, but, but th- there are 13 containers that people could put their money in. And Jesus is just sitting there. And he's watching people give. And I want to say this. This should let us know that, that, that God is not detached from your giving. I just find that so funny that it just tells us that Jesus is watching people give. I just find that, that, that interesting. Because giving is a, is, 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 is a serious matter because it's a spiritual matter. Giving is, God is literally watching what people give. And oftentimes we like to say, what I give is just between me and God. That shouldn't be a confident statement to you. For, for a non-generous person, that shouldn't be comforting. That's like the whole God knows my heart statement. That, that shouldn't really be too comforting for us, that God actually knows our heart. That should make us run to the cross and repent. But, but God, my, it's, it's, what I give is between me and the Lord. You're right, it is, and that should be scary to you. Because he's sitting here. And he's watching. Giving is between you and God, but that's not comforting for somebody who does not consistently and systematically give on a regular basis. That should make you shudder. But what we don't see Jesus doing is he's not condemning the people who are putting in large sums of money. That, 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 that should be a normal thing that people put in large sums of money according to what they have, right? It, it helps. It helps the ministry. It helps the mission. It, it helps the church do so many things. But, but those who are putting in large sums does not move Jesus. He observes what they are giving, but they're not giving in a way that makes them uncomfortable. It doesn't disrupt their lives. Some, and I'm sure some of them were, because when you put in a, something, the coins, the, the, the larger coins were more valuable and they made more noise. So I imagine some of the rich people were putting in, they were slam dunking their coins in the container. Bow! Right. Look at me. Look at what I gave. It was I mean, it was probably making all kinds of noises, but it didn't move the heart of God. It didn't move his heart. They were putting a lot of money in 
they weren't moving his heart, then one person comes through. This poor widow comes in, and she gets God's attention. She's a widow, and maybe what, what you don't know is that widows and the fatherless were the most marginalized people in society in antiquity. Widows were like extremely poor and impoverished. But here's what we do know throughout the Old Testament, the Bible, or God speaks and tells people that you should always take care of the poor and the widows. Take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And so this woman is poor. She's lost her husband, obviously. The person, the people who are supposed to take care of the widow was her family. And if her family didn't take care of her, those who are members of the church were supposed to take care of her. And so that should tell us something, that if there's one amongst us who is struggling, then we have a responsibility to come in and help each other out. Right? We are, we are called to help each other. We're not supposed to look at someone's plight and say, I'll pray for you. Maybe, we, they, maybe you are the answer to the prayer that they've been praying. Oh, I'll pray for you, sis, while I go spend $200 at brunch. Right? The Bible calls us to take care of those who are marginalized around us. This lady comes and she puts in two coins called a lepta. This is what they were called. They were the smallest coin or smallest denomination of a coin in circulation at that time. And she puts in both of her coins. This is maybe enough for her to purchase a last meal. But the Bible tells us that she put in everything that she had. This was all that this lady had left. She didn't have a surplus, surplus of money. Her bank account was not loaded. She didn't have a lot. But the Bible tells us she has two coins and she makes the choice not to put in one of them, but put in two. She, didn't put it, she could have put in one and kept the other. She could have saved herself and kept the other. But for some reason, this lady puts in both of her coins. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on in her mind? Matter, matter of fact, what's going on in her heart? What, what's happening in her heart? And Jesus sees this. He summons his disciples. He comes and says, look, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. I'm assuming if the disciples are watching and they see these people putting in lots of money and Jesus says this woman is putting in more than the rest of them, I'm sure the disciples is like, Jesus, that math is not mathing. How did she put in more when the value of what she put in is far less than the rich people? How is that even possible? You are God in the flesh. How can you be this bad at math? <laughs> and I'll start thinking, out of all the things and all the examples that Jesus could demonstrate to his disciples two days before he dies, he decides to show them this about money? Think about this context. He could be talking about everything. He could be making all kinds of preparation. But, but a model that he takes the time to show them is one of sacrificial generosity. This is something for us to, to take away, that, that this is important to God. If Jesus is talking about this a couple of days before he is to die, then it's important for us to learn. He's showing them th this to his disciples because this woman is a picture of what it means to be devoted to be a disciple of Jesus. This is devotion 
and discipleship. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. If there is one person who gets a pass for not giving, it's this lady. If there's one person who's like, the way my bank account is set up, it's this lady. If there's one person who says, hey, I'm struggling and I can't afford to give and everybody would understand, it's this sister right here. She, she has every reason not to give something but look for support from other people. She has every reason to no one would fault her if she did, but for some reason, she's moved to give. One of the practical things that I see in this story is that you don't wait until you're rich or financially comfortable to practice sacrificial generosity. This woman could have waited. She could have said, I'm gonna, I got this job lined up. I'm going to pay off these student loans. Or I'm going to wait for Joe to come through for me. Stop it. Stop it. Stop. 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 Please forgive me if I'm offending your uh, political sensibilities. I'm sorry. But when he does this, then I'll start. I'm, I'm just waiting for 2024 and the inflation just cools off a little bit. When it cools off, I'll start giving again, Pastor. I'll start giving again. Have you seen these gas prices lately, Pastor? Pastor, they just raised my rent for no good reason. They didn't give me any extra square footage. They didn't throw in a cable package. They didn't, they didn't pay for my AC. They, they just, just raised the rent. Didn't increase my amenities one bit. Just raised it up. Surely, Pastor, you can understand if I don't practice sacrificial generosity. Matter of fact, I'm, abst- I'm, abstain- I'm abstaining from giving. Her life circumstances, especially her finances, did not determine, or should I say, did not deter her from her devotion to God. It didn't deter her. Circumstances and emotions do not dictate how we respond to God. We cannot be emotional givers, but we give based off of a spiritual reality. He says that she put more into the treasury than all the others. How is that even possible? Because generosity is relative to the giver. She gave more proportionate to what she had. People that are generous give in proportion to what they have, to what they have. What they gave was not significant to them. It was not significant to what they possessed. This would be like someone who has $1,000 says, here's 10 bucks. Here's 10 bucks. And feel good about it. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't count. It doesn't change any plans. Nothing else has to be pushed back. It's not something that has to be prayed about. It's not something that is a sacrifice. It's just here's, here's 10. Go away. But what she gave was a sacrifice. I love the way Dr. Eugene Peterson gives it in, in, in his interpretation of this text. Here's what Eugene Peterson says. He says, the truth is that this poor widow gave more to the collection than all the others put together. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. She gave her all. She gave out of her her poverty. They gave out of their pocket change. She, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That literally means she gave her whole life. I think she gave her all because God had all of her. 
Because when God has you, it's not mine. It's his. My life, my marriage, my finances, my relationships, they all belong to him. And I operate, navigate, and manage through these things in light of what he has called me to do. She is a model of extravagant generosity. So let me clear this up. What she gave here, and if you're doing the math, she didn't give a tithe. This lady is not de- debating back and forth between gross or net. <laughs> I, I, feel it, I feel that. I feel that in the room. Gross or net. Gross or net. And, and you like, you, 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 you're charging God for the taxes that the U.S. government is taking out of your, God, what, what you want me to do? Right? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and God what belongs to God. But what we do see is that this woman gave something that meant something to her. And Jesus is pointing her out because she is a model of what true discipleship looks like. This is somebody who understands the kingdom of God. Here's why this is important for us. Why would I want to model after this? There's three reasons why we, we want to we do this. There's, there's three reasons. This is, this is, this is why we, we should practice extravagant generosity. Here's why. This is, this is good for all of life. Number one, it brings glory to God. There's one theologian who says, or the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The number one thing that that this does is it brings glory to God. Number two, it brings grace to others. When we give, whether directly or indirectly, it ultimately goes to helping somebody else. And the third third thing is it brings gratitude to us. There are very few things that feel better when I let go of something that means something to me. I try to leave myself out of, it, out of examples and demonstrations and sermons, and, and I will today, but I just want to give you this personal testimony. I'm, I'm being honest. I'm not a prosperity preacher. I'm not about, I don't, I don't name it, claim it, swear it, declare it, decree it, manifest it. I'm not into any of that. But I do believe that, 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 that when we give sacrificially to God, for some reason, God keeps taking care of us. I I don't know. It doesn't make sense. The math is never mathing. But somehow, this this sovereign God never lets me lack. I I don't know what it is about him. I don't know what it is. I can't figure it out. I don't know what kind of system he's using. Whatever it is, he seems to always come through. He takes care. I've never given something and then thought, I regret I shouldn't have given that. No, I'm like, you know what? God has come through for me yet again. I don't know how this keeps happening. I can't explain it. I can't make sense of it. But this sovereign God that I keep trusting keeps showing me that he has far more resources than I do. For, For some reason... When I give, he, give, he always gives me back more. It's unexplainable, and I want to be, on, be very honest with you as a pastor. This is eight years in. I was, I was also pastoring before this. I want to be very honest with you, very, very transparent. Please allow me an honest moment here. Here's what I noticed in church. I'm serious. I've noticed this for many, many years. Those who give the most, God keeps giving more. Now, I'm not telling you that this lady went off and became rich. 
But what I can tell you is that God took care of her. For some reason, those who increase their giving, God keeps increasing them. That is a typical pattern that I've seen time and time again. So let's go three points. I got three points for you about what made this woman generous. Three points, and then we're going to go home. Here's where it starts. Point number one. She had a transformed life. If we're going to be generous givers, number one, it starts with having a transformed life. It's not about dollars and cents. It's about our heart, right? This is, a, this is the fruit of a life that has been transformed by God. Th- th- there's no other explanation for why someone would choose to put everything in when they didn't have to. Unless their life has been radically transformed by God. Although the cross has not happened at this point, in some way this woman has trusted the God of Abraham. She has trusted God and has seen his provision in the past, what he's done for his people, and she decides that she can trust him. This woman's life has been radically transformed. And so this is important to understand because this this answers the question, why, why do Christians give? We give... Because we understand the sacrificial nature of God. We give because God is a giver. We give because God is a giver. We have received the good news of the gospel. John 3.16 is the basis, right? For God so loved the world that he did what? He did what? He kept. He kept. He did what? He did what? God's nature is to, God gave us his one and only son. God gave us everything. We respond to what God has already given us. We don't give to get, we give because we've been given. This is a result of a transformed life. And so if we're going to be generous people in life, we must be born again. We know that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. He gave his life as a ransom. He paid off a sin debt that you and I could not afford to pay. He's already provided for something that we could not provide for ourselves. And so when we give, we give as a response to what we've been given. This is a transformed life. And so, extravagant generosity is not about a one-time transaction. It is about a transformed life. So oftentimes we can say, you know, I'm going to give this one big thing this one time. But this is a life. It's a transformed life. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. Don't, Don't... contemplate what's the least you can give pray through giving as much as you can second thing that this reveals to us is that this is a total devotion to God this is a total devotion to God right before this particular section of scripture one of the scribes came to Jesus and asked him what is the main thing in all of this and here's what Jesus says Mark 12, 29 through 34. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus answers this scribe, and here's what he says in Mark 12, 29 through 34. He said this, 
the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than the burnt offerings and sacrifice. Loving God is more important than what we give. You got that? And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because devotion to God is what comes first. When love of God is established, generous giving is not perceived as a hurdle. We understand it's an honor. Many of us see generosity as a hurdle. But can I suggest to you that it's actually an honor? It's an honor because it's a way that we demonstrate our love for God. Loving God brings about a love to give. Love of God precedes generosity. Those who love God eventually grow into people who love to give. And this lady lives out the command to love the Lord with all her heart. But she also lives out the command to love the neighbor as herself. Do you realize that the lady put the money in one of the offering containers? That the money that she was giving was probably to help somebody who was probably in a better position than she was? She was at the lower rung. These offerings were to help people like her. But here she is stepping up to give something that will put her at a disadvantage so someone else could be at an advantage. That's biblical Christianity. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what this lady is demonstrating. But she's not the only one to do this. She's not the only one. There's a church that models this in 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And we've studied this one million times in this church, but I love it and I think it bears repeating Here's what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. That's what he says to them. They have plenty of money. but There's these Macedonian churches that don't have as much. They're actually impoverished like this widow. And here's what Paul says. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy, and their extreme poverty. This is not just struggling, but I got a house to go to. This is not just struggling. I say I'm struggling, but I'm going to brunch later. This is some real struggling. I can't afford to go to brunch. Who's got me if I go? I got to make up an excuse because I don't want to tell you that I can't afford it today. I don't want to tell you that gas is so high that I can't afford to drive across town and meet you in Winter Park for a nice brunch. They are in extreme poverty, but they overflow in the wealth of generosity on their part. How is that possible? Here's what Paul says. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly. When is the last time you begged somebody, please let me give? When is the offering coming? Please shut up, preacher. I got money to give. 
They begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just as we had hoped. Instead, look at what he did. Look at what they did. Here's the key. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord. They love God. And then to us by God's will, they love their neighbors. Are you seeing this? Love God precedes generosity. They love God. They love their neighbors. And so when you love God, the, the generosity is, an, is a byproduct. It's a fruit of love for God. So eventually you love what God loves and you care about what God, God cares about. You want to see the kingdom grow. You want to see the kingdom expand. And you stop looking at giving as a part of the service that's really religious, that we just throw a couple, ch- couple dollars at a couple cents at, and we keep it moving, or we put our finger up and walk out because we suddenly have to go to the restroom, or we got to go get our children out of children's ministry, or we got to go, we're late for something. We stop seeing it as that, and we see it as an opportunity to invest in the kingdom of God. The third thing. Third and final thing that, that she demonstrates and that we must have is trust. Trust. She genuinely trusts God. What kind of trust does a person have to have to give everything when there's not an option to do so, when there's an option not to? It's one thing to give everything. You don't have a choice. But how much trust do you have to have when you, you, don't, you don't have anything but you give everything? And I got to thinking about the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, rather. And there's one thing that we, we, we say. I played, bas- I played basketball, and before the games, we would say the Lord's Prayer. We teach, teach kids to pray, pray this way. We use the model of prayer. Um... But she's really living out this prayer because there's a part of the prayer where he says, pray this way. He says this, give us today our daily bread. She means that. She's, tr- she, no, she's, she's not trusting him for weekly bread. Th- th- she's trusting him for today. And we can get Food into thinking that we're not trusting God day to day because we have excess. You know where you're going to eat at the church. You've already planned it out. You're already timing when I'm going to get done. You've already, or you're in some kind of group thread where you guys have already discussed. I, I can see you doing it now. You, are, you already discussed where you're going to go afterwards, right? You kind of already determined in your mind, budgeted what, what, what you're going to spend there. Um, if you're a young man and you're taking out a young lady, you're praying that she doesn't go crazy in her order because you, you're still pretending because it's in the early stages like you got it when you don't. It's fine. It's all right. It's all right, people. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's okay. It's okay, man. I'm not trying to put you out there. Just be honest that you don't have it on the front end because that shock, that shock on the back end is not going to be healthy. This is not a relationship conference, all right? It's a story about generosity, not relationships. Right? You've you've planned planned this out, but don't ever fool that we still need to pray, God, give us this day our daily bread. Because everything that you have comes from God's hand. If you have a bank account full of money right now and you are comfortable, 
You need to depend on God for your daily bread. Anything could happen to your life and turn it upside down. Don't be fooled into thinking that you're just doing it on your own. Your degree from UCF is just carrying you on through. Your, your, your uh, graduate degree is just taking you to the next level. Your hard work is, is you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Matter of fact, that's antithetical to the gospel. There's no pull yourself up by your bootstraps. In the gospel, you don't have boots. God gives you boots. And God makes you walk. So what you have is not your own. It comes from God's hand. That's not to say you live around in fear with your finances, but it is to say every day I wake up, God, thank you for what you provided. I'm not crazy enough to think that everything I got is because I got it on my own or I got it out of the mud or I got it from wherever I got it from. It came from you. Give us today our daily bread. She is living this out. And here's what I want you to know as I'm getting ready to close. Here's what I want you to know. When we trust God in this manner, and it takes trust, it takes God's help to trust in this way, we open ourselves up to God's unlimited provision. Because here's the thing about God. He, he doesn't go back on his word. I promise never to leave you or forsake you. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, but the seed left begging for bread. So when God takes care of you, that has nothing to do about, nothing to do with you. And everything to do with who he is and his glory. Your name is not on the line. His is. Right? And God is not going to allow some reproach to be brought on his name. And so God is going to take care of his children. All I'm saying is that, is that you can trust God. The interesting thing about Mark's gospel is two chapters before this, Jesus presents an option to a young man who's called the young rich ruler. And he says, I've kept the law. I've done everything. And Jesus says, all right, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And the Bible tells us that the young man went away sad. He refused to trust God. He refused to trust. But where he refuses to trust, the woman shows us that God is trustworthy. This, God, this woman knew that God was faithful, that God would take care of her. And so, although this has been about financial generosity, this woman's trust first is spiritual before it's material. You can only trust God with your money when you first trusted God with your life. That is the nature of Christianity, is that we recognize that we are, that we are sinners, sinful, in need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We need God's help. You can be the richest person in the world, but if you do not have or trust in Jesus, you are bankrupt. What profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And so today, I'm not just asking you to trust God with your money. 
I'm asking you to trust him with your life. Because here's the thing. Greater than student loan debt. Greater than credit card debt. Greater than your car note. Is your sin debt. You can pay those things off eventually, maybe. If you live to be 150. But I guarantee you, the sin debt, you can't pay that off. There's only one who can satisfy that penalty. And his name is Jesus. And he came and he gave his life as a ransom to pay off the debt that you could not afford to pay off. And you don't have to do anything to receive this grace. You don't have to do anything. You just trust. You just have faith and believe in his finished work, not your own work. And here's what the byproduct is. You get something you can never pay for. You get forgiveness. You get eternal life. You get salvation. You get peace. You get provision. You get joy. All the things that you want in life comes when you rest your life in him. And so this isn't just an invitation for you to be financially generous. This is an invitation for you to give your life. Give your life. But let me tell you something. When you give your life, God doesn't disappoint. It's not to say you won't suffer. That's not to say you won't face temptation. That's not to say that life won't be hard. But the Bible promises us this, that yes, we will suffer with Christ, but we will also be raised with Christ. That we will be raised with him. That we will have eternal life one day. That we will have a life free of sickness, free of poverty, free of struggle, free of sin. But we have to trust him now. And this is an opportunity today for you to trust him. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.